All right, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah 32, 17. A pause for prayer. Last week in our time together, we exposited Jeremiah 32. We spoke of Jeremiah purchasing a plot of land in Israel, in his hometown of Anathoth, a hometown which, for all we know, was already in Babylon's hands, in a nation that was about to be conquered by his own prophecies, by, by, by testimony of, of Jeremiah's own prophecies, by Babylon for at least the next 70 years. They would be under uh, Babylonian control before the captivity would be brought back, and then there would be a, perhaps a transition back to Israel and some measure of autonomy. We spoke of the unique message of this investment that God's heart and mind were upon Israel, that there was hope. Jeremiah purchased this land as a reflection of his own confidence in God's promises of restoration. And our final call was that we would not be a people that hope in outcomes, but that we would be a people who hope in God, that we would not seek to bend God to our will, but rather to trust in God's outcomes and be seeking the Lord's will, right? Now, within the midst of this passage, we read a prayer, and it is a good prayer. It's a wonderful prayer, which Jeremiah lifts up unto the Lord. It's been a while since we've focused our hearts and minds on prayer directly, and, and this evening we're going to take time to consider one of these. Anytime you come to one of these prayers in the Old Testament, when you come to a prayer of one of God's people that is recorded, I would encourage you to take the time to focus on it for a little bit. We all... Prayer is the lifeblood of the saints. We all need to know how to pray. We all want to learn how to pray. And one of the best ways to learn how to pray is by listening to people pray. Now, what I don't mean by this is learning how to sound when we pray. That, that is, to some degree, inevitable. Uh, it's amazing to me how people start to sound like me in their prayers. I, I am, am somewhat um, entertained when, when, a, when, a, when someone comes to the church, if they start coming on Tuesday nights and so they hear me pray perhaps two or three times a week between Sunday morning and then if I pray on Sunday evening and then uh, Tuesday nights and you begin to kind of hear how the church prays and the church will take on in many ways the flavor of the pastor in prayer. And that's, that's somewhat inevitable. It's, it's somewhat inevitable in prayer. It, it can even be inevitable in teaching style. I remember when I went to Bible college, um, there, we would have times where, uh, you know, in seminary, where we would, each of us would preach. And it was amazing to see the different styles of preaching. And then if I was able to trace back to who their preacher was that they sat under, there were a tremendous amount of similarities between who they sat under growing up as, uh, uh, and listening to the preacher and the way that they would preach, their inflections, uh, did they wander, uh, even sometimes, and this has got a little bit uh, unfortunate, they'd pick up the tick of their pastor. So if their pastor was a spitter, so he'd have a, a rag to keep, you know, to keep wiping the spit off, which there are some that do that. And then you'd have these guys who aren't spitters, but they'd still be doing this all the time when they preach because they picked up on the tick of their pastor just from years of growing up. So not, not saying that this is a good thing by any stretch of the imagination, but what I am saying is that it is inevitable to some degree that you're going to sound like the ones under whom you learn, but that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is there's tremendous value in content and in spirit of assimilating various aspects of how people pray, of, of drawing upon the way that people pray and seeing various elements. My, uh, uh, I, was, I was talking with someone just very recently about A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer was a man that wrote um, uh, a, a, couple, a generation, perhaps two now ago. And um, one of the things that, if you've ever read an A.W. Tozer book, and, and he's not in our direct circles per se, but I have come to appreciate his writings. Uh, at the beginning of each chapter in many of his books is a prayer. And if you read those prayers, there is a reverence in those written prayers. There is a... a, a, a a highness, an exultation to those prayers that's worth learning from. If you've ever read the prayers of Charles Spurgeon, because they would transcribe his services, there is a, a contrite spirit 
in his prayers. There is a humility. There is a, 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 an eloquence as well, but a humility and a contriteness to his prayers that's worth learning from. And when you get into the prophets and the kings, and you read the prayer of, of, of the people in the word of God, prayers of Samuel, the prayer of Hannah, the, the prayers of David, the prayers of Jeremiah, the prayers of Isaiah, the prayers of Ezekiel. You can learn some things about prayer. Moses, right? And so, in content and in spirit, the prayers of God's people help us understand the length and the breadth and the depth of the possibilities surrounding prayer and how to go to God in prayer. So we're going to study this prayer and in doing so, perhaps remind us that it's important to pray. Maybe bubble up to the surface some elements of prayer. Maybe some ones that you've not thought about before or not thought about for a while. Maybe some things that have fallen off of your prayers or some ways that your prayers could, could, could uh, become more focused or, or some elements of content that, that you've neglected. So let's begin by reading the whole prayer together. Actually, um, uh, we will focus in on the whole prayer minus one. We'll just read through verse 24. I'll go ahead and read through verse 25, but we're not going to focus in on it this evening um, as it's not, it's, it, it, it kind of, at that point, it transitions to God, what's going on in, in verse 25, which, which is, is not going to be the focus of our time. But let's read it beginning in verse 17. Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretch out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest, excuse me, recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name, great in counsel and mighty in work, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day and in Israel and among other men, and has made thee a name as at this day and has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders and with a strong hand and with a stretched out arm and with great terror." And hast given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and possessed it, but they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. Behold the mounts, they are come unto the city to take it. And the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword and of the famine, and of the pestilence, and what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. I'm going to stop there. If we, uh, in verse 25, as I mentioned, uh, th there is this continuation, and thou hast said unto me, O Lord God, buy thee a field for money and take witnesses, for the city is given in the hands of Chaldeans. Jeremiah there uh, rehearsing what God had told him to do. Here we have Jeremiah's prayer. And remember the context. Jeremiah has just delivered evidence into, uh, of the purchase of this land to Baruch, the son of Neriah. He is perhaps in a state of a little bit of confusion. He has obeyed the Lord, not fully understanding why or what all it means. And he prays this prayer, and let's learn about it together. As we go through, uh, with each section of the prayer, I'm going to give you a point. So rather than have the uh, collected application at the end, we'll go through in, in perhaps the fashion of, of other preachers and give you one point after another. And in verse 17, what we find here is that we should come in confidence. In verse 17, as you pray... Come in confidence. As Jeremiah began this prayer, he entered into it carefully. He entered in it deliberately, but he did indeed enter into it confidently. Notice first, as a matter of academics, that Jeremiah calls him Lord God here. And we see that God is all in caps. Now remember what this means. Almost every time you see the name of God in all caps, it means that the Hebrew name behind it is that name Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on who you ask. Normally, it is Lord that we see in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. 
And so we'll see something like LORD in all caps and then capital G, lowercase OD, Lord God. We don't normally see God in all caps, but in this case, it is God that's in all caps. And that's because the name Jehovah is not combined here. Oftentimes, Lord God, it would be Jehovah Elohim, the Lord who is our God, that idea of Elohim being God. But here we have Jehovah Adonai or Adonai Jehovah, which is Adonai being the word Lord. And because the word Lord is being used here in combination with Jehovah, rather than having Lord, Lord, which doesn't read very well, right? They switched the Jehovah's name to God, but they put it in all caps so that you know that it's still Jehovah. And this was one of the benefits as well as the uniquenesses of our King James translation. So back to prayer itself. Jeremiah did not enter into this prayer because he was afraid or concerned that God did not know or that God was not in control or that God's plan was not going to work. He didn't know it, but he didn't quite know what was going on here. But as he entered into this prayer, he begins by expressing his confidence in God. He reminds himself through this prayer that he is... is fully confident of God. And the idea is this. If God, by His power and His stretched out arm, has made heaven and the earth, then is there anything that God can't do? There is nothing too hard for God. Now think about this with me for a moment. We are a people that are very prone to fret, very prone to worry. To approach circumstances as if we are alone. To approach our prayers to God in fear rather than in confidence. As if God was not able to do whatever He wants. As if the situation that we find ourselves in was one that God did not anticipate. We are prone to enter in this way because we are frail. Because we are weak and because we don't know what to expect next. Because we perhaps are in a situation that we did not anticipate. Now God, we know, is able to do whatever he wants. Our limits are not God's limits. To approach our prayers to God in a fearfulness, not in reverential fear, but in a timidity, in a, in, in a, in a, a, a lack of confidence, is perhaps more of a reflection of our limits. It's certainly not a reflection of God's. We may not be able to fundamentally change the world, the course of history, the mind of a leader, the circumstances of our job, our finances, our education, but these limits are our limits. They are not God's limits. We may not be able to change everything about our circumstances, but those are our limits. They are not God's limits. Nothing is too hard for God. And we all know that. And I know we know this. But the question is, and I really want you to think about your answer to this. The question is not whether we know this. The question is whether we pray like we know it. Whether we approach God like we know that. Whether we come to God in the confidence that we know we can have in Him. Or whether we come to God in the lack of confidence that is more a reflection of our lack of surety than it is about uh, of, of us and of our circumstances than it is about God. When something seems impossible, does that cause you to pray to God because nothing is too hard for Him? Or does it cause you to feel like you shouldn't even waste your, waste your breath because after all, it's impossible? When you are filled with stress or anxiety or fear, when the knowns or the unknowns of life hang over you like a cloud darkening your path in the fog of despair or uncertainty or of inevitable loss or failure, do you pray? Are your prayers a reflection of this cloud of powerlessness or do you allow your confidence in the God in whom nothing is too hard to overwhelm what is overwhelming you? Overwhelming the overwhelming. Overcome the overcoming. To give you peace, not in your circumstances, but as we considered last week, to give you peace in the God that presides over those circumstances. Because nothing is too hard for God. And this should give us confidence. 
and indeed urgency to take our request to him. Because if I approach a situation and I say, "Uh uh-oh, this is looking too hard for me, well then what should I do but go to the one to whom nothing is too hard? If my children come to a circumstance where something is too hard for them, they can either sit there in despair or they can say, hey, mom and dad, can you help me? Right? And because certain things are not too hard for mom and dad that are too hard for little kids, they appeal to the higher power and they are able to receive that which they seek because nothing within that context is too hard for mom and dad. Of course, there are things that are too hard for mom and dad. Let me give you an example. My littlest daughter. She has her milk cup and she keeps it in the fridge. She can't open the fridge. When it's time for the milk cup, she knows nothing is too hard for mom and dad. Dad, may I have my milk? Dad opens the fridge and she gets her milk cup. She can't do it, but it certainly doesn't cause her to despair. It just causes her to appeal to the authority that can open the fridge. This should give us confidence. It's the reality that the angel declared to Mary on the day he announced the birth of Jesus Christ. He said in Luke chapter 1, verses 36 and 37, Behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for with God nothing shall be impossible. It was impossible that this old barren woman should bear a child, Elizabeth, and yet with God nothing is impossible. It is this confidence that calls us to understand that God knows what we need before we ask Him. As our Lord exhorted us in Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. When you know that the God unto whom you are praying is a God unto whom nothing is impossible, is a God who knows what you're going to ask before you ask of it, you can and will pray in confidence. But our confidence goes beyond just God's abilities. When you know His eternal power and Godhead, that our God is the creator of heaven and earth, that this is all His anyway, uh, you know that He can do anything that you might lay before Him. But when you know not just His power, but His character then things get even better. My daughter is fully aware that mom and dad can open the fridge, but when she asks us in confidence is because she not only knows that mom and dad can open the fridge, but that mom and dad have her best interest in mind and delight in giving her her milk. So knowing the character of her mother and father, knowing the relationship she has with her mother and father, on top of the fact that they are capable of opening the fridge, uh, gives her further confidence to ask. When you know that God has loved us with an everlasting love, Jeremiah 31.3. When you know that the thoughts that God has thought toward us are thoughts of good, Jeremiah 29.11. Then you not only know that he can do anything, but you also know that he wants what is best for you. When you know his character, you cannot just know God's power, but you can trust God's intentions towards you. And this gives you added confidence in your prayers. Jeremiah didn't just pray to the God whom he knew could help him. But as we'll see as we continue, Jeremiah prayed to the God who knew, who he knew wanted Israel's best and his best. So he prayed to God in confidence because God can do it. And because based upon his relationship with God and knowledge of God's character, he knew that God had good intentions toward him. Jesus would go on to say in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And in that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? See, this is a a vote of confidence in the intentions of my Father toward me. It doesn't necessarily mean God's going to give me everything I want. Right? Because just because I want it doesn't mean it's what's best for me. But what it does mean 
is that if I go to God in the confidence of knowing there's nothing too hard for him, and I combine that with the confidence of knowing that God's intentions toward me are good, then I have confidence in my prayers. That the results of those prayers are going to be what God wants them to be. And thus I can be content. So Jeremiah began his prayer by declaring his confidence in God, in God's abilities and in God's intentions. And there's no better foundation for us to come to prayer than to come to prayer in that confidence. Verse 18, we don't just come in confidence. Second, we come in humility. Verse 18, thou showest loving kindness unto thousands and recompensest the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. Jeremiah is not praying to try to alter God's system here. Those kinds of prayers don't work. The kind of prayers where we go to God and, and, and say, God, uh, um, I want things my way and this is what I want and I'm asking you to give me what I want and, and, and trying to bend God's will around ours as we talked about a little bit last week. It doesn't work. It doesn't, come, it doesn't work to come to God trying to change God's character or God's design. So as Jeremiah prays, what we find him doing as he comes confidently knowing God's, God's power and knowing God's intentions, he then aligns himself with God's system. He aligns himself with God's character. He acknowledges who God is. He's not trying to fight God on this. His, his efforts in prayer are not an attempt to resist God, to fight God, to argue with God. Let me bring it back to my children for a moment. When my children come to me with a request, it does them no good to come to me in a manner that is in opposition to me. If they come to me in a naggy, whiny way, they are not going to find that is going to work out well for their request. If they come seeking to bend my will to theirs, they are not going to find what they seek. If they want to petition their father properly, it is going to be as they seek to align themselves with their father. They are not going to come to me in rebellion and expect me to thus bless them. They are not going to come to me in obstinacy and expect from that favor. We can't do that either. And Jeremiah didn't seek to hear. As Jeremiah prays, he humbles himself. He acknowledges that God shows loving kindness to thousands, but that God recompenses the iniquities of the fathers unto the sons after them. Now, this description of God is well established in biblical history, going all the way back to the day when God himself declared himself to Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. God declared himself thus. Remember, he passed by Moses and he covered Moses until uh, he passed by him. And then Moses got to see effectively the, 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 what, what, what the scriptures describe as his back parts or, or the, the, what we might say is the trail of God's glory was, the, was the, the extent to which God could reveal himself to Moses without Moses dying, right? And so God says this as he passes by Moses. This is, this is jumping into his description of himself. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and the fourth generation. Now there's always been some question and hesitation about what it means that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. This is uh, very similar to what Jeremiah says here in verse 18, that God recompenses the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Uh, especially, now we've already considered this in part, right? In Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, God spoke of this proverb that was found in Israel that the children were complaining in the days of Jeremiah that their fathers had eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth were set on edge indicating that they were suffering for their father's sins. Then we compared this to the proverb in Ezekiel 18, which also spoke of this proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now remember, Ezekiel and Jeremiah were prophesying at the same time. Ezekiel was in Babylon, Jeremiah was in Jerusalem. And we saw that, that there God brought up this proverb specifically to repudiate it, specifically to refute it, saying instead, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
So then we studied in Jeremiah 31 and we said that, that because of the Ezekiel passage where God repudiates this proverb, uh, we understand that that's not what is being, that, that this concept of visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children is not punishing children for their father's sins. So then what does this mean? While every man stands before God for his own choices and his own sins, and while there is no consensus among believers as to all of what this means, we do know, as we've said before, that the choices of parents affect children. We see this in the physical world. We see in the physical world how the choices of parents affect their children, how parents who are negligent, uh, how that, that deeply affects the children, their upbringing, how angry parents, intemperate parents, how those things will affect the children, how abusive parents affect their children, that their children will live with any number of issues and scars and frustrations and insecurities for the rest of their lives because of their parents' choices. And if we see this in the physical, if this is a physical reality, would it, should it then surprise us that there may be a spiritual correlation as well? That there may be spiritual effects upon children due to my spiritual choices. That generational sins, generational oppression, spiritual blessings and, and cursings may indeed be a part of God's design and justice. Not that each individual person is not making decisions for themselves and thus reaping the blessings and the cursings of their own decisions before the Lord. Not, and, and as we talked about, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. We made it very clear that while a father, a parent's decisions might predispose a child to a certain path, that they still are autonomous and that there are no consequences upon that child spiritually until such time as they choose to continue down that path, right? Until they make that choice. And we talked about this physically. We've talked about this uh, um, as it relates to, to, to the things of this world, that while a father may be angry or may be intemperate or may be abusive, and that would set a precedent for a child to grow up and to perhaps deal with those same problems, it is still their problem the moment they choose to get angry, the moment they choose to be abusive, the moment they choose to follow into intemperance. That is their choice at that point, though they were perhaps predisposed to that choice. And so while there are no easy answers to this, and we talked a few, a few weeks ago on Tuesday night about some of the things in the Bible where there's not easiest answers. This is one of them. The idea of God visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children. What all does it mean? Well, we can, we can lay out some things that it doesn't mean because of Ezekiel 18. But what it does mean is a little less clear. And some of the things that it could mean are uncomfortable, to say the least, but all within God's prerogative. Either way, back to the prayer. Jeremiah humbles himself before God, before God's design, before God's system, before God's way of doing things, coming to God and not saying, God, it's unfair, but rather saying, God, you are you, and I'm here for you. And regardless of whether or not I understand all of who you are or why you do what you do or how you do it, that doesn't change the fact that you are God. And I'm going to align myself with you, whatever that means. Because you're God. This is an important part of prayer. Coming to God on His terms. You're never going to fight God into changing His character. The blessed man is the man that comes to Him on His terms. He declares God to be the great, the mighty, the Lord of hosts. It is His name. Declarations of humility, declarations of acknowledgement of who God is, of a keen acknowledgement of God's greatness, of the worthiness of God's character and of his justice, and of the preeminence of God's loving kindness and his mercy. And of just how differently, how different God is from mankind. All of this comes from the mouth of the humble. 
echoing perhaps the spirit of Job's words in Job 40. Remember toward the end of Job. Job has been for any number of chapters getting more and more vehement in his innocence as his wretched comforters try to tell him of his sin. And at the end, he's simply saying, if only I could speak to God face to face, I would, I would have God vindicate me. God would vindicate me. I would tell God to vindicate me because God knows that I've done nothing wrong. And then God pops in, right? And he starts to tell Job, where were you when I made the heavens? Where were you when I hung the stars? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who holds back the oceans from, from the, the shores? And he goes through this litany of the wisdom and the power of God that so greatly transcends man that, that Job just needs to settle down a little bit, right? And Job says this in Job 40, verse 4. Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Job was innocent of the charges that his friends had leveled against him, wasn't he? He had not opened his mouth and sinned. He was. He had maintained his integrity before the Lord. But that doesn't mean that God owes him an explanation. That doesn't mean that, that, that God owes him clarity. God does not owe the righteous, obedient man anything. And so Job hears these exclamations of God and he says, I'm vile and I'm just going to shut my mouth now. But in Jeremiah's case, he, he isn't replying to God, he's praying to God. So he isn't going to shut his mouth, he's just going to humble his heart. And believer, we, we know the power and the preeminence of humility in the eyes of God, that the whole scriptures remind us that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. If you're coming to God and you want something from Him, if you are seeking from God a measure of petition, I can tell you this. Humility is the way to go. Acknowledgement of the Lord is the way to go. Prayer is not an entitled child running to daddy for another handout. Prayer is the child of the king coming in full faith and confidence because he knows his father loves him, but also coming in abject humility and reverence because his father isn't just his father. His father is the Lord of the land. And so it should be with our prayers as well. We come in confidence because we know that God loves us and we know his power. We know his power and we know his intentions. But we also come in humility because God is still God. One moment. It is still crazy hot in here. And this thermostat keeps bumping itself up. I bumped it down to 66 and it bumped itself back up to 72. 72 is too warm. Okay. Unpause. Almost. Yes. So we come in confidence. We come in humility. Third, verse 19. Come in acknowledgement. Come in acknowledgement. The verse says, Great in counsel, verse 19, and mighty in works, for thine eyes are open upon all the ways of the sons of men, to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. So Jeremiah comes to God understanding his power, understanding his glory, understanding that there is nothing too hard for him, humbling himself before God's mercy, his loving kindness, and judgment. And verse, in verse 19, we see... A reservation to God, knowing that God is great in counsel and mighty in work, that God sees all and that God knows all, that no man can pull the wool over God's eyes. Uh, this acknowledgement lays the groundwork for Jeremiah's peace. If we have confidence that God loves us, and if we know that God is above us, then we will not fear God's will for us. May I say that again? If we have confidence that God loves us in His ability and in His intentions, and we know that God is greater than us, we have humbled ourselves before Him, He is above us, then we will not fear God's will for us. It echoes the words of our Lord in the garden in the night before His death. Luke 22, verse 42, Jesus said, Father, 
If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. God, I know what I want, but I know some other things which are far more important than what I want. I know that you love me. And I know that you have my best in mind. I know that there's nothing too hard for you. I know that your ways are higher than my ways. I know just how much I don't know. Therefore, I come in acknowledgement that what I think I want may not really be what I want. What I think I understand may not really be what I understand. What I think I need may not really be what I need. What I think I'm feeling may not actually be what is best for me. And so what I really want is not what I want for me, but what you want for me. Because I trust you. And I know that this will always be that which is best for me. So God, what do you want for me? God, what is your best for me? I often speak of God's ways of being higher than our own. I've mentioned that on any number of occasions, but we haven't gone there very often as far as actually looking at the text. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we find in our Lord himself a wonderful example of acknowledgement. We also find a wonderful example from a man who was not God, that being David. Psalm 139 is a well-known psalm. It begins this way, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thought afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. The whole of the psalm, if we were to continue reading it together, uh, is a psalm of acknowledgement. It speaks to God's knowledge of me, of God's creative authority over me, of the reality that I am not an accident. That the way I am is not an accident. That the way I look was not an accident. That I was known to God when I was being formed. That the way, the abilities I have, not an accident. The abilities I lack, not an accident. It is a psalm of acknowledgement that ends in a startlingly transparent way. Verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, because you know me better than I know me, because you see the parts of me that I can't see or am unwilling to see, you search me. You try me. You see if there be any wicked way in me. You purge me. You change me. You cleanse me. You help me. You guide me. Because you know me better than I know myself. Acknowledgement of the greatness of God's counsel, of the greatness of God's might, leading me to a spirit of yieldedness to God and to His will. A spirit of desire for greater depths of purity and of fellowship. And we see this in Jeremiah's prayer as well. He is confident in God's power and in God's intentions. He is humbled by God's kindness, also God's justice. He acknowledges God's worthiness and God's capacities above his own. Verses 20 to 22, the next thing. Come in honesty. Come in honesty. Jeremiah continues, which has set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt even unto this day, and in Israel and among other men, and has made thee a name as at this day, and has brought forth thy people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and with wonders, and with a strong hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with great terror, and has given them this land, which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, and they came in and possessed it. But they obeyed not thy voice, neither walked in thy law. They have done nothing of all that thou commandest them to do. Therefore thou hast caused all this evil to come upon them. We know we can't fool God. You know you can't fool God, right? We talked about that a little bit earlier uh, today. The idea that, that God knows our heart, 
right? We talked about it in Sunday school as we talked about that uh, idea in First John chapter 3 about um, hating, if you've hated your brother, then you're a murderer, and the idea of murder, murdering in your heart from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and the fact that even if something in my heart never works itself out in my actions, it doesn't mean God doesn't know it's there, Right? A God that can only see the externals or only cares about the externals is, is not much of a God. So we know that we can't fool God, but here's the thing. We are very, very prone to fooling ourselves, aren't we? We are very prone to fooling ourselves. Is it any wonder then that we can fool ourselves into thinking that we can fool God? We know we can't fool God, but we are very prone to fool ourselves. And because we're very prone to fool ourselves, is it any wonder that we can fool ourselves into thinking we can fool God? We're not honest with ourselves, and therefore we go to prayer not being honest with ourselves, somehow thinking that that's going to mean that my, my dishonesty with myself is going to reflect a genuineness to God. And since I'm informing God of my needs, and I'm telling Him a need that is a need based upon me being dishonest with myself that somehow God is thus going to acquiesce to that need that I think I have that's a need that I'm conjuring up within me because I'm not being honest with myself. In this prayer, Jeremiah acknowledges all the ways of God and the ways that God has blessed and led Israel, the mighty arm of God to deliver the nation, of e- uh, the nation from Egypt, to give the nation the promised land, and even that the land was everything that God promised it would be, that God has been faithful from step one to step end. The human mind is tremendously capable, however, of self-deception, isn't it? Of finding any and every way to justify the reasons for my actions, to always be the victim of something. We even saw it in Jeremiah 31 with that proverb that the fathers have eaten a sour grape and the children's teeth have been set on edge. The people saying, look, where we are, it's not our fault that we're here. All of the judgment that's upon us, that's not our fault. It's our father's fault. If our fathers hadn't, hadn't done these things, we see it in Jesus' day. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. They are the ones whose fathers had killed the prophets. And here the Pharisees are saying, yeah, our fathers did that as they put their Messiah to death. Israel saw themselves as victims throughout their history. Victims of circumstance, victims of bad decisions of their forefathers, victims of the nations around them. But rarely did the nation react as the publican did in Jesus' parable in Luke 18, 13. And the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What is it about us as humans that makes us so hesitant to be honest about ourselves? To, in honesty about our own condition, be hesitant even to lift up our eyes to heaven and instead to smite our own breasts and plead for mercy. Jeremiah is honest here that the nation has been delivered into the hand of uh, God alone or delivered by the hand of God alone because they have failed God deeply. Because they have obeyed nothing of all that God asked them to do. That God has been nothing but good to them and that they have walked away from Him. This spirit, which the Bible calls a contrite heart, is of such great value to God. So David would write of it twice. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save us such as be of a contrite spirit. Also Psalm 51, 17 in that great psalm of confession. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. A contrite heart, a broken spirit, when combined with these other elements, confidence in God's power, and in God's intentions, humility in the face of God's greatness, acknowledgement of God's worthiness, of his right and of his judgment. Combine that with a contrite heart, a heart of personal acknowledgement, a heart that recognizes who I am and the state within which I find myself, a heart that is not seeking to justify myself but is eager to justify God, creates a great condition for our prayers. Not one where I'm so low that I don't feel like I can or should pray because I have confidence in God, right? 
So I'm not going to get to the point where I say, well, I'm so, such a vile worm, I'm not even going to come to God. That would be a problem. But simultaneously, not where I come that demanding that, that God fix my circumstances because I demand my rights and my justice. But where I come to God and say, God, you've been so good. You are so great. I need you, and without you, I can do nothing. You know what I need, and you indeed know it better than I do. So help me. So guide me. So provide for me. So protect me. And this, God will not despise. Come in confidence in God's power and God's intentions. Come in humility. Come in acknowledgement. Come in honesty. Fifth, come asking. Jeremiah says, Behold the mounts. They are coming to the city to take it, and the city is given into the hand of the Chaldeans that fight against it because of the sword, because of the famine, because of the pestilence. And what thou hast spoken is come to pass, and behold, thou seest it. Now I say come asking, but notice here that Jeremiah never actually asks a question. He never asks anything of God in his prayer. What he does is, in confidence and in humility and in acknowledgement and in honesty, he tells God, God, you see what's going on. You see the enemy at the door. You see the city in the hands of the Babylonians. You see the mounts rising to overthrow the city. You see the suffering of your people. Why doesn't Jeremiah ask for something here? The reason, it, I, I think, as I think through this, is because Jeremiah has no idea what to ask. See, Jeremiah has been telling them for decades now that pestilence, that famine, and that the sword are coming. So it would be kind of silly at this point for Jeremiah to say, God, don't bring sword, pestilence, and famine. But he loves his people, and he doesn't want to see them suffer. And so at that point, he doesn't even know what to... I don't think Jeremiah knows what to ask. But what he does know is that God knows. <laughs> and so he simply says, God, you know. God, behold, thou seest it. All of, you, you're seeing all of these things. And the flavor of this prayer is, God, I acknowledge. I've humbled myself before you. I acknowledge you. I'm, I'm honest about what we are. I know that there's nothing too hard for you. Now, God, whatever you can do, please do. You're just, you're right, all of these things are right, it's your place, it's your right to do these things, you are holy, you've been warning these people for a long time about these things, all of that is in place, but God, if there's any mercy, if there's anything that you can do, look at the mounts, look at the siege, look at the things that are going on, look at your people suffering, it, whatever you can do, God, just, it's yours. He can't do anything except leave it with God. So he leaves it with God. Jeremiah understands in his yieldedness to the will of God, his yieldedness to God's proclamations and his prophecies, to God's plan, to God's intentions, in this alone, in God's intentions, in God's plans, in God's prophecies, in God's proclamations, in God's character, in God's intentions, in God's mercy, in God's justice, in the character of God alone, there is a petition. So he says, God, you're great. You're all powerful. You have delivered God's people. You, God's people have sinned against you. You are just. Here are the enemies. And God, I know you see it all. And as Jeremiah laid all this before God, God could take it, and Jeremiah could have instead peace. God, you take all of these burdens, and I'll just walk away leaving it in your hands. So that he sets an example of Paul's exhortation in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be careful for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This kind of prayer, these, these attributes, these are the things that empower me to take everything to the throne of grace, to lay it before the Lord, and to leave it there. Christians often do a fine job of taking our problems to God. Let me speak for myself rather than to speak for you. 
I often do a fine job of taking my problems to God. I lay them before him. I get down on my knees and I say, God, there's this problem. God, there's this problem. God, there's this problem. There's these concerns. Uh, I pray for my children in these ways. I pray for my wife in these ways. I pray for my church in these ways. I pray for these ministries. I pray for these individuals. I pray for these needs. Lord, you... Are, are, you, you need help me with this, help them with this. God, I lay these things before you. And then once I've done it all, I, I pack it all back up. I put it back in my backpack and I carry it out back with me. And I, I, I rest under those burdens that, that I brought before the Lord and I informed the Lord as if, as if God didn't know them. But then I carry them back out with me rather than leaving them there at the feet of my loving father. God, I've done my part. God, I'm doing my part. God, what more should I do? Tell me what more I should do. And while I'm waiting, I'm leaving it with you. Jeremiah here lays out a mindset and a temperament that makes for contentment in prayer and and thus makes for success in prayer, not because of what is being said, but because of what the things that are said tell us about the heart of Jeremiah that he brings into this prayer. And if we can find just such a heart just such a perspective, just such an attitude, then there's little doubt that our prayers can be vibrant and that we can replace the angst and the sorrows and the unknowns of life with peace. Five different characteristics here. Come in confidence. Confidence of God's power and of God's intentions. Come in humility. Humbling ourselves before the God who is. Come in acknowledgement of God's will, of God's Way, Come in honesty, not trying to fool myself into thinking I'm something I'm not or trying to fool God into thinking that my circumstances are not, uh, not what they are. Not trying to fool myself into thinking that, that, that I am not where I am because of choices I've made or because of the things of this world and, and, and thus seeking victimhood status with God. But coming in honesty and then coming asking. How are we doing this evening? Have there been elements of your prayers which have been fearful rather than confident? Proud as opposed to humble. Entitled rather than acknowledging. Hypocritical rather than honest. Reserved rather than resolved. Jeremiah's prayer is a good one. It gives us good reminders about the methods and the manner in which we come before the Lord in prayer. I think each of us can probably find in Jeremiah's prayer opportunities for personal growth in our own prayer lives. And as the Spirit of God would seek to teach us of these things, may God help us to live them out, to pray them out in our lives, and thus become more effective in our own prayer lives this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.